I really enjoy playing the card game Euchre. In Euchre, the hand is dealt and, and a suit is chosen to be trump. Now the highest card of the, of the suit that is, is chosen trump, or the lowest card, excuse me, of the suit that is chosen trump, the nine, takes any other card from any other suit. That's where the, the question comes from. What is Trump? A few years ago, a movie came out uh, called God is Not Dead. I don't know if all of you have seen it, if any of you have seen it. I'm not going to spoil the movie. Um, <clears throat> I would recommend it to you. I, th I thought it was a very good movie. The story is about a young man who goes off to college. The professor in one of his classes, I, I believe it was a philosophy class, is a practicing atheist. And right at the beginning of class, he hands out a sheet of paper that says, God is dead, and he asks every student to sign it. This young man refused to sign it because he was a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. It was required to get a passing grade to sign this, a piece of paper that says God is dead, but he wouldn't do it. I don't want to spoil the movie, as I said, um, but there's one scene that captures what Jesus is getting at, I think, in these verses. The young man is talking with his fiance, who is also a student at the university. She urges him to just sign the paper, even though both of them know that God is not dead. And he tells her that he cannot sign and has accepted the challenge to debate the professor in class um, and persuade, try to persuade his fellow students that God is alive. She breaks off the engagement and says something like this, you're going down in flames and you're not going to drag me with you. This young man suffered some, some division and loss of a close relationship because he was a devoted Jesus follower. Let's look at the test, text, verse 34. The um, point... First point of the message is the certainty of division. You know what? That's one verse I didn't print in my notes, so I gotta actually turn my my Bible to great verses. Verse thirty-four. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Probably a question comes up in your mind, and I think this is something that young people are saying now. They say, wait, what? I thought Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Didn't the angels announce his birth with peace on earth, goodwill to men? I think to answer that question, 
it is helpful to think about two key words, peace and sword. There are two kinds of peace. peace. Most people think peace is the absence of division, conflict, confrontation. People dream of world peace. The Jewish people of Jesus' day dreamed of peace. In Acts 1.6, the resurrected Jesus was asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' answer was this, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When Jesus was on earth, when he came as a little baby and grew up and entered his earthly ministry, he was not here to establish that outward peace, world peace. But his second coming coming will be totally different. Listen to this description of Jesus' rule during the millennium. From Micah 4, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. All peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their plowshares, or their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. When Jesus comes as a conquering hero, he will bring that world peace. The peace that people desired, the peace that, that the, the Jews of Israel desired, They've desired to be free from the tyranny of the Roman government. There's a different kind of peace that Jesus talked about. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. The Apostle Paul also teaches on, on this type of peace in Philippians 4, starting in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is how I expect, uh, express the other kind of peace. It is an inner calm and order. When everything around you is chaos. 
It is an inner calm and order when everything around you is chaos. That is a peace worth having. We cannot control what other people do, what other people say. We can't control to a large extent what our government does, what other governments do. But we can have an inner calm and order in the midst of chaos. I believe, and scripture bears, bears it out, that Jesus came to bring that kind of peace when he came the first time. But he was playing on the expectations of people, their desires, when he says, I did not come to bring peace. Well, to further understand what he is saying here, let's talk about the sword. And then I think we can tie the two, two things together. What is a sword? I think we're probably all familiar with that. A sword is an instrument of war. Uh, it is designed to pierce and cut. If you will, it is designed to separate flesh and bone. It is a tool of violence. So is Jesus saying we should be a violent people? No. That would go against what Jesus teaches. For an example, in Matthew chapter 6, and we've been through these verses in our study of Matthew. But Matthew chapter 6, verse 38 he has, has said already, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and, spitefully, and persecute you, and pray for those who spitefully use you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? So if Jesus is not, his meaning of using, and using the word sword is not that we should be a violent people, which we should not. Um, I think, I believe that in any area Apart from the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the cross, and the gospel of grace, we should be the most amiable people on the face of the earth. Ephesians 6 
17, when Jesus or when the writer Paul is is giving the the armor that we are to put on, the spiritual armor, he says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword, I believe, Jesus brought is the word of God. What is the job of the sword of the word? The sword of the spirit, which is the word. Hebrews 11, chapter, or Hebrews 4, chapter Chapter 4, verse 11, excuse me. We read, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The rest he is talking about is rest in Jesus Christ for salvation. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. There's our word, sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. A, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There it is. The word of God is called a sword. And the work of that sword is is to reveal the thoughts and intents of the human heart. Another way to say it would be, the word of God reveals our motivations. The problem is there are natural tendencies to resist or deny that we have wrong motives. This causes us to lash out at what is causing us to look at our innermost being. More often than not, we lash out at the messenger because we cannot change the message. This fact is why Jesus said he did not come to bring peace. He did not come to bring a sword, or he did come to bring a sword because, because the sword of the word it is what brings inner calm and order when there is chaos all around. What I have experienced, and I believe is taught in Scripture, is that the more you let the sword of the Spirit pierce and cut, to the core of your being, and then respond in repentance to what is revealed, the more inner calm and order you will experience. There have been times and basically dealing with um, actions and conducts of, of church members that doesn't measure up with scripture that when, I, when I'm in the word, I get a clear sense and a calm that the right thing to do is to confront that. But if I step away from the word for a couple of days, 
and start thinking in human terms, there is no inner calm or order. That has been my experience. Also, my experience is God's delivering me from a pretty significant sin has brought great calm and peace in my life. But that was a result of letting the word penetrate and cut. Jesus trumps our desire for absence of division. He clearly says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. If we stand on the word of God, if we follow Jesus wholeheartedly, people will oppose us. And oftentimes, it's the ones closest to us. Which brings us to the second point, the scope of division. Verses 35 and 36 of our text are quoted from Micah chapter 6, or chapter 7, verse 6. Here again, when he talks about uh, strife in the family and a, and a discord, division between a father and a son, a mother and a daughter, and a, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, There's a question that comes from, from what Jesus says here. That is, is Jesus saying that we should walk away from our families? Should we walk away from our biological or social families? And I, and I use that term because we have two daughters who were adopted. They are not my biological children, but they are my children. No, Jesus is not saying that we walk away from our families. But Jesus confronted the Pharisees in Mark 7, verses 8 through 13 about a custom that they had where if someone said, I'm pledging this much money to the temple, that if their aging parents needed financial help, they could not support them in their old age because they had made a pledge to the temple. And Jesus said, you nullify the command of God because of your tradition. And the command of God is the fifth commandment, the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and you may dwell long in the land. Jesus is not anti-family, but Jesus does require us to put him first. I cannot say it better, this whole, this whole concept about the division, the strife, than what Matthew Henry says in his commentary of these verses. Quote, 
Look not for peace, but division. I am come to set men at variance. This effect of the preaching of the gospel is not the fault of the gospel, but of those who do not receive it. When some believe the things that are spoken and others believe them not, the faith of those that believe condemns those who believe not, and therefore they have an enmity against them that believe. Note, the most violent and implacable feuds have ever been those that have arisen from difference in religion. No enmity like that of the persecutors. No resolution like that of the persecuted. Thus Christ tells his disciples what they would, should suffer. And these were, the, were hard sayings. If they could bear these, they could bear anything. No, Christi, Christ has dealt fairly and faithfully with us in telling us the worst we, we can meet with in his service. And he would have us deal so with ourselves in sitting down and counting the cost. There is a certainty of division, and the scope of division it, it extends even to the ones very closest to us. The movie I mentioned uh, has a subplot that illustrates this. There's a teenage girl in a Muslim family that puts her faith in Christ. In the course of time, her sister discovers this and rats her out to her father. Her father is furious and kicks her out of the house. This is division over love and devotion to Jesus. Some of us in this room have experienced division in our families because we have followed Jesus and his word when family members would not. It's tough. It's painful. It has been worth it. And I, I'm not, Violet and I aren't the only ones that have uh, division in our families because of, of the word and of Jesus. Um, verse 37 in our text says, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Simply put, devotion to Jesus trumps devotion to family. Jesus goes on to say, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The cross in Jesus' day brought one image to mind. In our day, I don't think it... It evokes the same image because we have uh, the Catholic people who have the crucifix and a lot of times they wear it on a, a chain around their neck. It is an empty cross. It's beautiful, made out of wood or silver or gold. The image 
that I'm sure immediately came into the minds of all the people Jesus was talking to was the image of the Roman cross, an instrument of death, a cruel and painful death. After carrying that cross, that instrument of their execution through crowds of onlookers, it was shameful. In Mark 8.34, Jesus ties the cross with self-denial. Jesus, uh, 8.34 of Mark, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus tells, teaches us that we must die to ourselves. We must surrender our desires, our passion, our will to be shaped by Jesus and God the Father. That's pretty much everything, isn't it? Jesus trumps everything. That really is the main point of this passage. Jesus, completely God, completely man, the Savior of the world, says, if you follow me, I have to be number one. I have to trump everything in your life. Well, Jesus goes on, and I don't know if you catch it in verse 39. He says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus goes on to say there is a reward for making Jesus number one. I think immediately we think of eternal life, life with God in heaven someday. As we like to express it here in our church family, it also means Life under the rule of God, with God. That's the here and now. But don't miss the warning. If you live to yourself and do what you want to do and don't follow Jesus, there is a warning. You will lose your life. And I believe that's eternal life apart from God but also a pretty miserable experience here on earth. Always having that internal chaos and unrest. Even when things seem to be going right around you. You got a good job. Um, your kids are all doing well in school and behaving themselves. You know, things are going good. But if you're not following Jesus, I think God will put an internal turmoil in your heart if you're not following Jesus. In, in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul 
I said something that I think is valid to say here is that when we let Jesus trump everything, we experience new life. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus also talked about um, abundant life in John chapter 10. I have come to give them life and that more abundantly. Um, so not only do we have a place in heaven when we follow Jesus, we have abundant life, we have new life here on this earth. That is the reward of making Jesus number one, of letting Jesus trump everything. Thinking about new and abundant life in the context of our main text, I ask, wouldn't it be life-giving to have that inner calm and order when things around you are falling apart? I say yes. Even though and it happened just a couple of weeks ago. I did not have that inner calm and rest. I was in turmoil inside. I do cherish and, and feel more alive when I let the word speak to that situation to cause that inner turmoil and know what I need to do and not worry about all the ifs and ands and buts and you know everything um, just do what God says in his word I should do then peace comes back um, it's a great way to live I wish I could live that way all the time um, I'm still working on it because this passage addresses one of the most painful things a human can experience in life, that is having family turn against you, I would like to close with this thought. Faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, letting him trump everything in our lives, makes us a part of the family of God. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. Now therefore you have no are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And I think 
in Romans chapter 8, what the Apostle Paul writes here, starting in verse 12, beautifully ties in the things that I've been talking about this morning. Um, as I read this, think about the dis different aspects, the certainty of division, the scope of division, the reward for being willing to accept that division for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he said, Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, you, but, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Wow. Rewards. There's the, the warning. If you live by the flesh, you will die. Adoption. Into the family of God. I didn't look up the reference, but I'm, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure this actually is a verse. <laughs> that the Bible says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's Jesus. To have Jesus as a brother, to have others who are committed to following Christ no matter the cost as brothers and sisters should give us encouragement a desire to let Jesus trump everything in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity to study this passage. To understand more clearly that this passage does not, uh, in this passage, Jesus is not uh, contradicting himself, but that he is giving a deeper meaning that 